As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. They were different out at UCLA, and there was a guy who died at 88 last year, Axel Ayanavud, who was a hero in my house, and as someone once said to me, he was the Marine coming out of the trenches. Andrew Hollenhorst has been the Marine in this odd, odd Fed cycle. You have taken shrapnel for your high-yield call. People are like, not, and yet you reaffirm the Fed higher this morning, don't you? I think if you just look at this economic the mic, data, and the mic's over here. Come on, all right. I, the I'm, first time, <laughs> yeah, okay. the first time on the show. Yeah, thanks, Tom. If, if you look at the economic data, I mean, it just keeps coming in, showing a tight labor market. Uh, we keep getting these numbers, strong spending. I agree with Mike. I don't think we're going to get five, six percent GDP this quarter, but we're probably going to get at least two percent GDP and maybe three percent GDP growth. And I think you did hear some of that coming out of Jackson Hole. You look at the core inflation numbers; they've slowed for a couple months. That's good news. Headline inflation has slowed, so there there is some good news in terms of price pressure that's a little bit more subdued now. Right. But when you look at this economy, the tight labor market. It's going to drive wages. Wages are going to drive prices. The heart of your academics, and frankly, it goes to Catherine Mann now at the Bank of England as well, is a real humility about what we don't know. Olivier Blanchard calls that other factors. What are the other factors that the low-yield people, the rate-cut people, get wrong? Yeah, so I, I, I think the other factors that we have at play here in the U.S. economy include some of the domestic strength that I was talking about, which is not just the tight labor market, but also the tight housing market. And this is an odd one, and I, I think you described this cycle as being odd, and, and it certainly is. Usually you would think mortgage rates move higher, we get a slowdown in housing, and we get a slowdown in house prices. And that happened, but the issue we have now is supply has actually become more constrained in the housing sector than demand. So those households that have an existing home that are paying a 3% mortgage rate, not a lot of incentive to put that home on the market. So that supply is staying really constrained. The Case-Shiller price index came out this week. Um, we're up again, close to double-digit percentage increases on an annualized basis. And that's just not going to be consistent with 2% inflation. Yeah, there's just no inventory in the existing home market. It all is in the new market, which is why you're seeing that bifurcation in housing. Just on the subject of demand outside of housing and coming back to the data of this morning with personal spending of eight-tenths of one percent at the same time that personal income actually grew less than expected, how much longer realistically could the U.S. consumer live above their means if we're talking about a savings pile that has dwindled, which is what was helping fuel this in the first place, and your income not growing as fast, wages barely keeping up with inflation? Isn't the spending going to have to come to a halt at some point? Yeah, and don't forget student loan repayments restarting. Yeah, in so, October. Yeah, so there, there are some headwinds that the consumer is facing here. Um, I think what, what has happened, though, is we had such an extended period 
of low interest rates, such an extended period of ample liquidity. Um, you saw credit card debt go down significantly during the pandemic. And now those levels have built back up. Now you're seeing delinquency rates that are getting back to more normal delinquency rates that we would expect in kind of a normally functioning economy. To your point, as the Fed leaves rates higher, we're going to see more tightening of credit. That's going to be a headwind for consumers. Eventually, that will slow the economy. Um, we still think we could see a significant economic slowdown in 2024, perhaps a recession in 2024. Um, but you, you have to take seriously the data uh, that are coming in. And we still see this, this really strong spending, like you pointed out, you know, eight tenths of a percentage point up uh, on personal spending. I mean, it's just a really strong consumer right now. So if we do get that recession in 2024, but you still don't get 2% inflation, is the Federal Reserve going to tolerate the pain ultimately, do you think? So that's a really tough scenario for the Fed. I think if you get a significant enough slowdown, you will see some deflationary pressure. Um, but we could have a period of time, and maybe it's going to be an extended period of time, where you see the economy slowing. Um, and to some extent, you, you see this with the you know, credit that is tightening already. Right? We have some signs that things are going to slow down eventually. Um, if inflation was stably at 2%, then the Fed might be a lot more comfortable thinking about cutting rates. I think what we heard from Chair Powell last week at Jackson Hole was that although they'll be attentive to both growth and inflation, uh, right now they really do have to concentrate on those upside risks to inflation. That's where you're coming from. We still have various measures of core underlying inflation that are running too high. Um, and that means that there could be a period of time when you see mm. somewhat weaker growth data, but the Fed is still holding rates higher. Richard Clarida is identified with this thing, DSGE. All you need to know on a Labor Day Thursday is we're not going to do the math. either. I can't do the math. It's that fancy. <laughs> but the bottom line is, I mentioned Axel Leonovit earlier, that article from years ago, Beyond DSG Models, where he and a team really go after the math the math certitude, the mathiness of the Andrew Hollenhorst world. Do we have operative models right now? Do we, in God's name, know what we're doing? So I think that is one of the big challenges here. Um, what is the theoretical framework that we're using to assess the economy and to assess monetary policy? And you heard Powell point to that uncertainty in his comments. As last a non-economist, as a non-economist, yeah. yeah. And so he you know, he talked about this you know, navigating according to the stars under a cloudy sky. And what does he mean by the stars? The the underlying neutral rate of interest uh, that would neither be restrictive nor stimulative. Uh, the underlying natural rate of unemployment. The, these are important theoretical concepts, but we really don't have a good way of evaluating them in real time. We don't know where they are. So it is going to be this kind of responding to the data. It just comes back to data dependency. If you don't have a strong theoretical framework, then you follow the data. Yeah. Setting monetary policy can be a tricky business in an environment like this one. Can I just quickly ask you about fiscal policy as well? Because we hear a lot about we have not yet seen things like the CHIPS Act, Inflation Reduction Act, that actually being realized in the economy and making a difference. At what point does what theoretically could be a driver actually become a drag because the Fed might have to respond to those new injections? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, it's a great point. We're starting to see some things in the data that are at least suggestive that maybe you're seeing some of this showing up. Um, we did see stronger investment in manufacturing. Maybe that's related to the CHIPS Act. Um, but you're right. These things are going to take a long time to actually play out. It's going to take time for that money to come into the economy. Um, at the end of the day, 
the Fed is not going to kind of look at fiscal policy and then try to directly offset fiscal policy with monetary yeah, policy. It's not their business. Right? It, exactly. The Fed doesn't want to be in that business. So what the Fed is going to do is just look at the data, look at the data like we got today. If inflation stays cooler, then that's great news. And that's more reason to think that the Fed can be a little bit more dovish here. I, I think they're pretty comfortable with the level of policy rates. Um, we still think they're probably going to hike one more time in November, but that's probably going to be the end of the cycle. And then it really comes back to this question of when do they make that first cut? Mm. Andrew Hollenhorst with us. John Stolfus, Chief Investment Strategist at Oppenheimer Asset Management, joins us now. John, wonderful to have a bull on the programme. Let's talk about why you're still so bullish and reflect on the economic data of the week, sir, if we can. There is a feeling that bad news is somewhat good news. Is there a tipping point when bad news just becomes, John, bad news? Well, uh, uh, thanks for having me on the show, uh, uh, John. It's always great to be on surveillance. Uh, I've got to say, you know, when we look at it, uh, things are continue to get better. Uh, offsetting negativity. That's why uh, bad news has been good news. In essence, we're seeing the economy is genuinely slowing some, but it's not falling off the cliff, whether it's the consumer, whether it's jobs, uh, whether it's it's uh, our Q2 earnings, even though you had a drop in earnings for the S&P 500. Last I, I looked at my Bloomberg a few minutes ago, what, negative 6% uh, on the quarter. <laughs> It's uh, three sectors have the negative uh, earnings growth. They're double digit, and it's it's energy, materials, and healthcare. It's not tech or consumer discretionary or industrial. Uh, so, John, you've been one of the great bulls. You've been one of the great great bulls. Where are you right now, Ford? Four thousand what? 4900 for the end of the year remains our target. Uh, we did uh, lower our our uh, a projection of what earnings will look like for this year from two thirty down to two twenty. Uh, but overall, we're right. looking for support to uh, the S&P 500 to remain uh, remarkably strong. What, what do you need to do to get to 5,000? I mean, I got to make some news here today. What do you need to do to up that to 5,000? Uh, Tom, you're egging me on. You know, <laughs> I, I, I think I think we need to do to, to have some remarkable news related to uh, the Fed's achievements uh, against inflation and a real clear signal. Uh, that it's the end of the cycle with a pause, not because the economy is falling apart, but rather that it has achieved its goal. I don't think that happens this year. I think that happens in 2024. Well, and in 2024 is when this market increasingly and earlier is expecting the Fed to start cutting rates. So if we do get to 4,900 or potentially even 5,000, John, can we stay up there if the reason they're cutting is because things have turned south and the tightening has taken perhaps more effect uh, than they would have wanted to if they overshoot? Well, I, I think the key word there, uh, the operative word is if things have turned south, it's if things have basically gone so that we really are, are entering a period of sustainable economic growth at a, at, a, uh, at, a, at a slow or moderate pace, I don't think that uh, uh, we'll be seeing the, the, the Fed cut drastically. Mm. And th this might be one of those, just because when we look at it, the inflation was caused by overstimulation in fiscal policies, what we look at, what we, what we think of two administrations, and they, they did that. They were concerned about the effects of COVID on the economy, and, and likely all that stimulation is what is enabling us to get through this period of a Fed funds hike cycle as well as we are. So we, we think at this point, uh, we think this is it continues to be a workout market. And a workout market is always uh, has considerable uncertainty to it in terms of its outcome. 
But we wouldn't bet against the American consumer and we wouldn't bet against American business, the American economy. We're, we think we're, uh, we're, we're the sunlight is at the end of the tunnel, not an oncoming locomotive. Well, John, let's hope that's the case. I think a lot of people feel the same way. You said the consumer. Don't bet against the American consumer. Plenty of retailers have flagged up plenty of issues <clears throat> over the last couple of weeks. What do you read into that? Most certainly, and yet consumer discretionary as a sector is, is doing very well. I think it reflects the services end of the economy versus uh, uh, the goods. A lot of that is, is, is related to, at this period in the cycle, it's still the experiential adventure for the consumer in many ways. Yeah. Uh, the consumer has slowed. And then the, if you look at the individual retailers, it really has to do with who, who is balancing e-commerce and bricks and mortar or e-commerce and some kind of touch with their consumer and, and meeting the consumer's needs. And so, you know, that's the way to look at it. John, what do you do with big tech? I mean, let's say I own shares. I got a big gain. I mean, do you have a, a rationalization of owning those big seven stocks where you just take a terminal value out three years, five years, hold your nose and say, let's go? I, I think, you know, it, it's not quite hold, hold your nose. It's take a look and look at the companies and consider what businesses they have that are deeply embedded in the lives of both the consumer as well as in business. And amongst those big seven, it, it's a fairly recurring uh, trend that you see or a trend that, that keeps rolling forward in an upward direction. Uh, they remain yeah. companies that are very deeply embedded in our lives, both as consumers and as business people. And so revenue growth is likely to continue. It'll ebb and flow uh, at, at different points. And, you know, it, it's trees don't grow to the sky and all. But the general trend looks like uh, this is parallel to where the automobile was in the early 20th century after uh, Ford uh, had, uh, you know, uh, essentially improved the 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 uh, the. the uh, the manufacturing uh, uh, process to increase pro uh, increase the ability of the automobile in terms of quality and lower the price. Uh, technology easily accessible, uh, that makes it deeply embedded in our lives and it's profitable. So, John, what role does that small group of stocks play in the 400-point gap between where we are now and where you think we're going to get in 4,900, considering that they have been the biggest point contributors to the gains we have seen this year? Can they continue to provide that leadership? Well, you know, I, I think in, in, in essence, when we look at it, it it's, you, you've got to realize that technology is not unto itself. Uh, rather, it contributes to all 11 sectors. So within the 11 sectors, I mean, we own some uh, industrial stocks. I can't mention the names. The firm doesn't allow me to, to pitch what I own. Thank God for that. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but we own uh, stocks in the industrial sector, uh, in consumer discretionary, uh, and uh, uh, within, within the space of other sectors that have done remarkably well. Uh, and it just has to do with uh, it, it, it's, it's a combination of alpha generation as well as, as playing the broader sectors. John, I get you can't do single names, but can you just describe in greater detail what's within consumer discretionary, given that it's such a broad space? Yeah, within consumer discretionary, you know, it, it has to do, again, with leisure stocks. It has to do with uh, uh, stocks related uh, to uh, uh, gaming, uh, to travel, has to do with uh, uh, the, the electrification of the automobile and the process of that transition uh, that's reflected within all kinds of products that are sold in stores. 
Uh, and it, it also has to do, there's, there's a certain element here coming up where there is a back to the office trend that is not back to the office like we used to be, but certainly uh, where people are coming out of the caves uh, going back to uh, uh, going back to 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 a more uh, uh, normalized uh, environment where they show up at the office three days a week. Hey, John, good to hear from you as always. John Stolfus there of Oppenheimer. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Cameron Dawson joining us, CIO at Red Bull Formula One Racing, joins us this morning. Thank you so much for your patience with Max Verstappen. Greatly appreciate it. Um, you've got one single sentence, and you, you go right to the heart of it. September is the worst month, and yet you're hardwired, optimistic, you got to be in the market. Do you go to cash in September? No, because September being the worst month is just because it's below average returns. It's not necessarily that it's all going to implode. And even the correction that we had in August was below average, meaning it was so small in its magnitude. So it doesn't really warrant making big portfolio changes. I think at the end of the day, this correction has not been about growth. And in fact, we've actually seen EPS growth estimates going up in recent weeks. And I think that's one of the reasons for these shorter, shallow corrections. It's when the revisions cycle turns down, that you should be more concerned of a deeper correction. Ian Lingen, BMO, moments ago, we just played the clip. He said, screaming by 10 years. It's actually my words that I put in his mouth, but he agreed with it. Do you agree it's a screaming by? Well, if the 10 years is screaming by, then credit is a screaming sell and equities, at least the riskiest parts of equities, would be a screaming sell. Because we think that for the 10-year to go back to 3%, you would actually have to see much weaker economic environment. You'd need to see the whites of the eyes of a recession. And that likely means Ooh. then that those economic or those earning projections for 2024, which have about low double-digit growth, are way too high. So if the 10 year goes back to 3%, we think it would be bad for risk assets. Do you see that recession? Not the whites of the eyes? No, not yet. Though, you know, there's all this discussion about GDP versus GDI and if GDP will catch down and really what is the underlying growth rate. But for right now, we don't see enough evidence that a recession is imminent. And there still are calls that will enter one in the fourth quarter. We think if we do have one, it's much more of a 2024 scenario, which just means that it's not being priced in yet. If we don't have one, though, couldn't that also be bad news if the landing is too soft? Couldn't that mean the Fed has to has to do more and then eventually has to force it anyway. Yeah, it is very peculiar because that is actually what's happened in 2023. The Fed has had to do more than what was projected. Yeah. The bond market has had to price in more hikes, less cuts. You've seen yields go up. Yields since or the pricing of the <clears throat> December 2023 Fed rate 
has gone up 170 basis points since the March low. <laughs> since that time, mm. the NASDAQ PE multiple is up 36%. So I don't know going right. forward if the path of the Fed matters as much for equity valuations mm. as it did, let's say, in 21 or 22. We talked a few days ago about the cost of real estate renting, the struggle for a huge body of America to mm -hmm. find a down payment for real estate. We had a huge response on that discussion. Mm -hmm. Do you advocate margin here within this bull market? This question doesn't come up enough, I think. Everybody's out there selling the idea of leverage up margin, options margin, futures margin, margin, margin. Do you advocate using margin within the growth sphere? Well, margin is a heck of a lot more expensive than it was just a few years ago, given rates are higher. So you have to factor that into the equation. We have seen, you can see measures in FINRA data about the usage of margin debt, and that's come off of the 2020 wind peaks, which is not surprising. But the real question is how much of that is being replaced by options, which are a form of margin. Four to one, yeah, roughly. And so you've seen so much option activity, surging call options, the zero date to expiration options. So margin is always something that you have to play with very, very carefully because it, of course, can work against you very quickly. She memorized Sometimes that can go bad. She just, Cameron just nailed that. Can answer. we talk about a different kind of margin? Profit margins. <clears throat> mm -hmm. at Dollar General. They've come out and basically said earnings are going to tumble as much as 34% on a per share basis during the current fiscal year. It's pretty brutal stuff. They're not alone. Are you taking what the retailers are saying seriously? Is this more important than what the hard data is telling us right now, which is retail consumption is better than good? Well, there's some retailers that have pricing power and some that don't. And I think that Dollar General probably falls into that category where the elasticity of the demand of their customers mm -hmm. is much different than the higher end retail where they can continue to push price. They can continue to pass on those higher costs to their customers. So the areas where you don't have pricing power is where you're seeing the margin pressure. Yeah. And of course, when we're talking about the different areas within discretionary and pricing power, travel airlines. They've been able to exercise pricing power in such a material way as we've seen demand recover out of the pandemic. And John, you earlier this week pointed to when we got the consumer confidence data, which was weaker, people were still willing to travel. Planning vacations. Put it on their credit card. Now, I don't know whether to believe that data or not. Yeah. I'm wondering whether they just saw Instagram posts and were like, I'm planning one too. Right. Like, I wonder how that data is put together. Are we going to see that vacation boom continue? Yeah, the FOMO is real, and there's all this talk about all of the summer that we've had with the concerts, the hot girl summer, if that's coming <laughs> to an end. I, I think at the end of the day, the question going forward is, can the consumer yeah. continue to live beyond means? We've seen credit usage go up, but it's yeah. that savings rate that's coming down and the savings balance that has been whittled down. Did you see how a chill just came into our, our offices here at 731? I saw Holland Horse walk by. Andrew's and it's in. like the black cloud of high interest rates. I can't like see the, light, the lights aren't on in the corner of the studio, so I can never see. The, the room when Hollenhorst shows up. If we get an Andrew Hollenhorst world of higher interest rates, what does that do to your stock portfolio? Well, I think it does increasingly create a challenge, but as we just just talked about is that we have seen this divergence of yields and growth valuations, for example. In the past, we would say that if yields continue to climb higher, we should be concerned that growth valuations trading up near 2021 highs would not be sustainable. Now, if yields are higher because growth is better, inflation's higher, that is good for the earnings side of the scenario, but then you get that offset from valuation.
The Eras Tour has been the most meaningful <laughs> electric experience of my life so far. And I'm overjoyed to tell you that it'll be coming to the big screen soon, starting October 13th. You'll be able to experience the concert film in theatres, Tom, in North America. Do you like that? This is Taylor Swift speaking, not John Do I need a Definitely definitely not me. That is a direct Do I need a friendship bracelet? What's a friendship bracelet? Isn't that something you tie up and hand to a friend? Have you seen this, Cameron? Have you seen Miss Swift? used to buy them on beaches. No, no, I'm. No, I have not. We're looking at Paris tickets. Paris tickets in May of next year. A decent seat's 900 bucks, and somewhere back near Lyon is $700. It's a bargain. Cameron, thank you. Cameron Dawson of New Edge. Someone as esoteric and wonderful as Max Verstappen, Jean-Patrick Barnard is in Frankfurt here, and he knows Swiss banking. He's worked within the banking racket and provides journalistic services to Bloomberg News. Were you surprised by these announcements, John? I mean, come on. You buy the bank. It's a shotgun marriage. You know how that's funny accounting and all that. Am I supposed to be surprised at a $29 billion statistic? No, absolutely not. That's accounting shenanigan, and, and we all know that that uh, they bought Credit Suisse on the cheap when it comes to the pure yeah. purchase price. And there are a lot of risks that are associated with the, the deal. So the 29 billion number is not not very surprising. But what you can be surprised about a little bit, or at least I was, and I feel like some market participants as well, is like how firm the management of uh, UBS already is in their idea and their vision on how they want the merger to play out. That is very unusual. As you said, it was a shotgun marriage. It was just barely six months ago, uh, and I feel like they're giving us really like good content and good ideas on how they want to shape up this right. merger, where they want the bank to position, and, and that's a very surprising thing to me that they're able to do this. When you're popping a 20-euro bowl of soup in Brasserie Lip, you people are gossiping about who from Credit Suisse survived. Did many people from Credit Suisse survive? Well, for the for the time being, that's is still the case. I mean, we heard that they are cutting 3,000 jobs in in Switzerland, and uh, as you mentioned before, that's probably not the end of the um, uh, of the uh, of the number here. And we will get something much much higher, and they will like feed this to the market and to the politicians, to the general public, especially uh, step by step, not to lose their um, the cover for the merger or to create any any storm that they don't want. On the other hand, I also feel like uh, while they're giving us a good idea on where they want the bank to be in position and how they want to move forward, is that they have haven't figured out all the details. And we heard the CEO today that's saying he is surprised by um, how many um, good uh, uh, additional business Credit Suisse is bringing in that, uh, that is fitting uh, into, into the overall picture. So I think like they have not fully figured out like where do we want to keep the talent and where do we have like the real overlap that we need to get rid of. So there's clearly still work left to be done. What timeline realistically are we looking at? How much longer is this going to take? Uh, well, it, it's still going to take years, that's, that's for sure. But uh, again, UBS is doing the right thing here in, in terms of that they are giving us like step by step and on every meeting that they are speaking, they're giving us something um, to deal with and to see like in, in which direction the bank is, is heading. Um, the whole merger until we get like the final picture is probably still going to be next year or even like 2025 uh, until they have figured everything out. Um, but they promise they give us more details uh, on the fourth quarter earnings, which will be somewhere in, in January or February of, of next year. So that's the next mile stone to watch. And at the end of the analyst call, Sergio Amorti, the CEO, also said like, there's plenty of time to speak to each other in case there are any questions until the third quarter uh, earnings. So again, they understand that the market is desperate for information and wants to see like every new development, what they're doing. And they have understood this. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they will, if they have good news, um, they will mm -hmm. feed this to us step by step and as early as possible. If they have good news, where are the potential opportunities for bad news? What are the biggest risks here? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are plenty. And uh, it was funny again, the CEO saying on the call that they are, are not naive and they are not like painting a blue sky scenario here. Mm. Um, there are obstacles along the way. Uh, one is like with the risk weighted assets that they have now outsourced into uh, the so-called non-core and legacy unit. That's $55 billion. Uh, so that's a lot of uh, stuff that can potentially blow up. They said it won't, but you never know. The other thing is like they still don't know how the clients will behave. It's looking pretty solid right now in terms of uh, clients coming back to the combined lender. Um, but we need like uh, at least like two or three more quarters to see if like if this trend is, is sustained. Uh, and also like they were very short on details on telling us like, um, like how do you want to win back the clients? How do you want to align your, your mm -hmm. business in details in certain areas? Of course, it's a bit much to ask again just six months since the merger was announced. But a little bit more details here um, would be helpful. And there are still like some areas where they could surprise. Now that they're one, who's their arch competitor? I mean, obviously, I'm going to say Deutsche Bank, but inform me. Who are they competing against? Other Swiss banks I don't know? Or Deutsche Bank? Or JP Morgan? Who's UBS competing against? Well, that, that's a very good question. I mean, like they have nobody like on the same level here in Europe. But of course, you have a lot of niche players or smaller wealth management players who will try to get a share and who will try to benefit of that um, client behavior where clients are certainly not going to have like a con concentration risk uh, from their assets at Credit Suisse and UBS. So I guess like everybody will, will try to, to, to get a, a big cake here. But um, I was just like thinking about this for a, for a broader story. Like every European bank maybe want to watch this merger very closely because you suddenly see, even though it was four, it somehow seems to work and you have now a major major bank here with like five trillion dollars of uh, of assets under management uh, and uh, you need to compete against them so the question is like for all the other big players out there do you want to consider a merger maybe as well to get to the same scale um, because otherwise competing against UBS in terms of wealth management at least seems to be a very hard and upward battle I would say yeah and isn't this unique though didn't they get a dance partner essentially for free <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, yeah, you, you could come to that conclusion, I would say. Of course, I mean, the price was very cheap. But again, like there are still risks associated with this merger. It's not a done deal yet. It's looking pretty well for the time being. But again, you could see like the, the final quarter results that we had from Credit Suisse today had a $10 billion loss in it. Uh, sorry, 10 billion um, Swiss francs loss in it. So there's still like a huge burden that they now have on the balance sheet. Again, there are five, $55 billion in this non-core unit that they need to run down. Um, and again, they still don't know how clients will behave so uh, it's looking good right now they're doing the right things but this is not in in, in dry papers now and uh, there could still be go something wrong so i would say like telling them this was for free and of course this is going well is is too short <laughs> well said Jan patrick thank you sir Jan patrick barner of bloomberg on ubs nobody ever says make it complicated that is why nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. 
Max Verstappen of Red Bull Racing joins us right now. Max, good morning, buddy. It's great to catch up with you, sir. Nine wins in a row. Just phenomenal. You're trying to make it 10 at Monza. How special would that be? Yeah, I mean, of course, it's something that I never even, you know, told about that that is even possible, right? But now that we have won nine in a row, uh, tying the record, um, of course, you want more. And uh, I think we have a we have a good opportunity, but um, F1 races are never uh, straightforward. A lot of things that can uh, can happen. Um, but yeah, I'm excited, of course, for the weekend. Max, let's go back a couple of decades. Tell me back to the days when you were in a go-kart and you got to be around people like Michael Schumacher and your father, for that matter, as well. Is that where this hunger desire comes from to dominate even after you get win after win? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, of course you need, you, you, you really want it uh, from a young age, but um, I think also the way I grew up, um, you know, having the experience of my dad by my side. Um, yeah, for sure. From a very young age, I think you, um, you know, get prepared in a, in a different way, I guess. And uh, yeah, for me, it's never good enough. You know, even, um, you try to, you know, look for the little details that can go better. I mean, for sure, this year so far, I think has been amazing. But um, yeah, I will never be uh, satisfied uh, at the end of the day. Max, Tom, and I were talking about Marco van Basten retiring from football at 28, and I always hear people talk about you. They say things like, "He's going to get bored. He's going to get bored by this, or potentially step away." Do the records that Schumacher set are they worth sticking around for you, Max? Is that something that drives you? Um. Like I never really um, targeted like records. Um, I of course really enjoy what I'm doing now, and I think for me at the moment is the opposite. This for me is not boring. This is really exciting. Like I'm always very mm. motivated to get to the track. I think it's more when uh, you're not winning anymore, and there is also no real plan in place or a future where you see yourself winning again. Then probably you get bored. Yeah. But uh, I think retiring at 28 for me uh, is probably a bit too soon. Max, John Farrow is steeped in all that you do. He grew up in England and lives Formula One. I'm your ugly American. I'm new to this. I'm the one you need at Las Vegas, you need at Austin, Miami, wherever. And in reading about this, and I go to the great journalist Peter Windsor on this, he says you do corners and turns like nobody. He talks of Silverstone and the three turns of maggots and beckets. How do you approach the tight turns of Formula One? Peter Windsor says that's the difference. Um, I think, you know, everyone has their own driving style, but also I think what is key in our sport is that you're able to adapt to whatever is needed. So, you know, every year we have a new car, a different looking car, and every single car drives a bit differently. And I think, um, yeah, you always have to adapt and learn and try to grow, try to be different, try to really you know, get the most out of the car. And if the car is driven the fastest way in, in a different way than what you're used to, you have to try and um, adjust to that. Do you wish for a smaller, lighter car? Uh, of course, that would be ideal, but you also have to be realistic. I think with the safety standards that are, you know, always improving every single year, that is not always possible to go lighter. But I'm, I'm sure, you know, we are looking into... Uh, the future regulations as well to try and um, yeah make it better. Max, your bosses lighter. are thinking about the commercial stuff. We caught up with Christian Horner. It's great to talk to Christian a month or so ago. And we were talking about the race calendar and how many races are now in new places like in the United States, like in Vegas. For a man like yourself, can you compare, say, a Monza to a Miami, 
at Las Vegas. And Max, do you get excited about it when, for some people, the purists might complain about this just being a commercial event, moving away from the traditional race car racing in places like Monza and Silverstone? Well, the, the beautiful thing is, is that we have a lot of different Grand Prix still. And um, I think it would be very boring if they're all the same, right? And yes, I am very aware that, you know, um, we shouldn't go to all the, let's say, the commercial places. But I think also Las Vegas gives you a new, a unique opportunity. And then time will tell, you know, if it's the right way to go or not. But for sure, from my side, you know, I'm, I like the pure racetracks. I think in F1 car as well, it really comes alive on, on the proper racetracks like Monza, like Spa, like Silverstone. So for sure, you know, we need to keep these um, kind of tracks on, on, the, on the calendar. Max, they're always trying to rework the format when a car, a team goes through a period of dominance. I remember when it just used to be qualifying 30 minutes, fastest driver, fastest car, they get pole. Then they tried to make qualifying more interesting. Do you think tweaking the format with sprint racing in one weekend, not the other. Is that something that frustrates you as a driver? Yeah, I'm, I'm not really excited by these things because I think when something works really well, why do you need to try and mm. uh, tweak it? Um, and uh, yeah, this is, I think, a constant discussion. And uh, for sure, yeah. you know, some things will work out well, some don't. But uh, yeah, for me, trying to keep it like it is, you know, um, probably is the best thing forward because I always thought the qualifying format and, uh, you know, before you get into the, the single right. race, I think is very exciting. Max, I agree with you. I'm a complete hack at this, but I totally agree with you. The sprint thing is ridiculous. I just don't understand it. I love the qualification thing the day before. I love to tune into that. Max Verstappen, are you in a place is completely dominant in the sports involving all the money and the egos where can you control the future of who your teammate is. I understand there's autosport gossip and all that, but are you in a position now, Max, where you can dictate, discuss, or say who a future teammate will be? Well, this is always up to uh, the bosses and the team. I mean, of course, I'm I'm a team member now for a long time. And of course, things, you know, you talk about stuff, but I'm not the one who is telling them what to do or or deciding things at the end of the day. I need to focus on my job and that's to try and drive as quick as I can every single weekend. We do a good job of that, Max. A good job of that, particularly this season. <laughs> Max, how close are you with Checo? Yeah, we are very close. Honestly, I think um, we are very similar in a way also how we approach, I think, our life outside of Formula One. Um, you know, he's a real family person. Of course, he has his kids as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty similar. I think it's good to to try and, you know, sometimes switch off and just, you know, not think about Formula One. And I think that's where we can really relate. You know what people are like? They like to stir up gossip and tell stories. And Max, you've been reluctant to get involved in the Netflix series, which has been massive here stateside. Max, what's behind that reluctance? Why don't you like doing those things so much? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think at one point, you know, certain things are also a bit more private. Privacy uh, for me is very important. And, um, you know, I like things to be portrayed um, like they actually are not with a lot of, um, let's say, spice to it. Um, but, you know, every year now, I mean, we had a good chat every year. I do I do have an interview and I explain my side of the story. And I think that's important. Yeah. I know how important Netflix is in a way, of course, to try and attract um, 
new fans, but of course, yeah, it's important also to to really see the reality of, of the sport. John, I'll let you ask. I mean, we're in London, we come back, and that gives us just enough time to go to Las Vegas oh, you in go November. To Vegas. But, you know, if Max can pull some strings for us, I think possibly <laughs> we could be all Las Vegas with Red Bull. You want to ask him yourself? Or you want no, me no, to I'd ask? let you ask, please. I You're think more maybe gracious. Max would prefer us to ask Christian Horner. And we'll ask Christian a little bit later. Max, I wanted to squeeze this in. I wanted your side of the story. I don't want to talk about the last race. I want to go back to Austria. Final lap of the Grand Prix. You have the opportunity to set the fastest lap. You make the call to make a pit, to put on fresh tyres and go around and set the fastest lap for a single point, Max. From your perspective, walk me through the thinking there. Is that something you've planned ahead of the race? Is that something you think about in the moment? And where does that confidence, that conviction come from? to go against the team who would like you to stay out and just make the call yourself. I can do it. I know I can do it. I've got the control, the ability to perform. Where does that come from, Max? Yeah, I mean, I always try to maximize everything I can. And, um, you know, I saw the opportunity for the extra points. So I was like, well, why not? Of course, there's always a bit of a risk um, with these kind of things. But at the other hand, no risk, no fun, right? So that's um, what was also going through my uh, my head at the time. Max, good luck for race weekend. Join the team. Fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Max Verstappen of Red Bull Racing. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.